Well, again, it's uh, our privilege to welcome you to this morning to Southside to worship with us today on Easter Sunday morning. Um, yesterday, we had a great group of volunteers and folks who went over to the Larson Outreach Center. And uh, while we were over in the Larson Outreach Center, we uh, had what you're supposed to do on Easter weekend. We had an Easter egg hunt and a picnic and a cookout. And uh, we just celebrated and enjoyed uh, the, the members of the Larson community. I know some of you may be here today, but I'm just so thankful for the volunteers. Many folks who came and volunteered, uh, Vicki Harrelson from our staff coordinated the whole thing. And then there were other folks uh, who were involved in, in the event, uh, volunteers who came, Kirk Scoville and our college grow group showed up. So thank you guys for coming out and cooking. Daryl Munch and some of our deacons were there and other folks. Um, I think we may have some, we don't, okay. Uh, so anyway, we're just so glad that you guys were, were a part of that. And as we celebrate the Easter story, uh, Vicki was telling the Easter story to the kids and she had put together some Easter eggs, and there were about 10 or 12 Easter eggs, and in each egg there was a little item that went along with the Easter story. So uh, she gave them out to the kids, and she'd call a child up each time and open the egg, and whatever the item was would be the part of the story she would tell. So a little donkey about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and the next one would be a little, a little cup, and it was how he got with his disciples uh, for the Passover feast. And so the second egg, the third egg, the fourth egg, and the anticipation and excitement was building with each egg. And so the eighth egg and the ninth egg. And then finally, she called up the little girl who had the tenth egg and she opened it up and it was empty. And of course, there's this moment of thought like, uh oh, what did I do wrong? Did I get the wrong egg? You know, everybody's got this moment. But that was the point that the tomb was empty, just like the egg was empty. And you could sort of see this look on the kid's face as they recognized and registered the surprise of that. And I thought about the story that Sarah read for us earlier, the surprise that must have uh, come along with those women as they reached the tomb and found that it was empty. And I started thinking about what is the nature of a surprise. You know, there are all kinds of surprises we face in life. Uh, yeah, here's some of the pictures. All kinds of surprises we face in life. Um, sometimes a surprise may be something that's a happy surprise. Uh, a surprise where you weren't expecting uh, maybe someone to show up, somebody you haven't seen in a long time. Sometimes the surprise is maybe uh, unexpected but is something tragic. Uh, you get some bad news. We've all had those moments of surprise. And I started thinking the nature of surprise can be so different. It can bring such joy and it can bring such tragedy. What is it that surprise has in common? And I thought, really, this is essential to every surprise, no matter what kind of surprise it is, is that it defies our expectations. That a surprise, by nature, defies your expectations. It may be that it's just something that you expected to happen, but you didn't know when it would happen. You were surprised when it happened. It could be something that came to you out of the blue. Maybe uh, you lost a job and you didn't see it coming. Or maybe, uh, maybe you uh, got a proposal. I don't know. Do, are proposals ever surpri- marriage proposals ever surprises anymore? Anybody ever, were you surprised by a marriage proposal? Anybody in the room? Okay, a few people were. Okay, very good. So it does still happen. It does still happen. I'm not going to ask you if you're still married to that person. But, but they do happen, or if you said yes or no. But they do happen. Surprise. It's something that defies our expectation. Easter is a surprise. Easter has been a surprise 
for thousands of years. And it was certainly a surprise on that first Easter Sunday morning. And you know, as we gather here 2,000 years later, and my guess is whether you're in church often or whether this is your first time in church or you don't come very often or not, we're glad you're here. But my guess is you've heard the Easter story. There's not much in the Easter story or about the story that you don't know that would be surprising to you. Many people who hear the Easter story and come have sort of reduced the idea of the resurrection to a symbol, a beautiful symbol, of the, of the resiliency of the human spirit. Just the fact that, that God helps us to overcome. And, and it really doesn't matter whether it was historically accurate or not. It's a beautiful picture, and so we tell the story. And people, uh, some have come to accept that. But you know, the problem with that is that symbols must be rooted in a hope that is true in order for them to have any power. You think about this. Think about the fairy tales that that we heard as kids or that we tell our children. The reason the fairy tales have endured hundreds of years or maybe even centuries isn't because necessarily the facts of the fairy tale were true, but it's because there is a hope in the fairy tale that must be true. So you've got a story of, uh, of an orphaned girl who is basically an indentured servant, and a prince comes along and sweeps her off her feet, and the hope is that could happen. And this is why everybody uh, watches the royal family in England when those young princes decide to take a bride. Because it just might happen. I mean, your life could just be turned around by a surprise marriage proposal. So the hope has to be true in order for the, the, the symbol to carry any power or have any effect at all. Here's the problem. If the resurrection, if the resurrection of Jesus is not rooted in fact, if it is not something that historically took place, then there is no hope at all in the Christian message. There is nothing about the Christian message that has any hope. Paul, an apostle, one of the early apostles in the church, actually was somebody who didn't believe the stories of Jesus. He was alive at the same time Jesus was alive. He no doubt heard the teachings of Jesus, heard about the miracles of Jesus. He, he was one of the Pharisees, and, and he's watching. And the, Even after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the Christians are going around telling everybody he's alive, Paul's a part of the posse that's going around trying to kill the church. He's trying to get the Christians to stop talking about Jesus. And in an instant, he goes from being somebody who's persecuting the church to being one of the greatest advocates the church has ever known. And it happened because he encountered the resurrected Jesus. Here's what Paul said about the importance of the resurrection, the fact that the resurrection must be true. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians of all people in the world should be pitied. They should be laughed at, they should be mocked, and they should be scorned. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing else matters that Christians say. Here's what I find interesting. Over the last 200 years, uh, really, since the Enlightenment, uh, we have sort of had this idea, this, this mentality uh, among our modern thinkers that we've kind of outgrown the need for the resurrection to be historically true. That, that we've just sort of moved past that. Because of scientific methods and discovery, uh, that, that's a fable or a myth or, or something that, that people clung to for hope. But now, now that we've got the scientific method and reason, we can sort of leave that behind. Here's what I find so incredibly ridiculous about that idea. It's, it's this idea that, that as if it's a modern discovery that dead people don't rise from the dead. Like, like somehow in the past 200 years, we finally just figured out, oh, dead people stay dead. Everybody's always known that throughout all of history. The story of Jesus' resurrection was never easy to accept. 
It was something that everybody's had a hard time with, even from the very beginning. It's not just that we modern thinkers have looked back on the resurrection and said, oh, that can't happen. The people who were alive in Jesus' day said that that couldn't happen. Let me just give you some examples. So the Jews in Jesus' day had a rich history of theology and religion. They had had this hope that God would send a Savior to deliver his people, just like he had sent Moses thousands of years before, that God would again raise up and send a Messiah, a deliverer. Nobody thought that that Messiah would come along and be crucified and certainly didn't have any expectation that he'd rise from the dead. Actually, when Jesus was crucified, that only proved that he couldn't have been the Messiah that they thought that he was or that he claimed to be. Because it was the Messiah who would come and defeat the Romans. And Jesus came and was killed by the Romans. So therefore, there's no way he could be the Messiah. But it wasn't just the Jews who thought that. It was also those who who sort of followed Greek philosophy and thinking. The Romans, of course, got all their philosophy and all their worldview from the great Greek philosophers. And the Greek philosophers thought that the idea of a bodily resurrection was ridiculous. See, in Greek philosophy, here's how it works. Everything about your body, everything about your flesh is bad. The the best thing that you could do is shed your physical existence and just fully embrace your spiritual existence. Everything spiritual is good. Everything physical is bad. So when the Christians, the early church, started talking about the resurrection, all the Greeks looked at them and scratched their head and said, "Are are you guys crazy? Why would anybody want an old, decayed body back to life? They laughed at the Christians. See, the Greeks had no belief in a physical, bodily resurrection, but it's better than that. So the Jews didn't believe it. The Greeks didn't believe it. Even Jesus' own followers didn't believe it. I mean, they, after all, were Jews themselves. Many of them had been raised in Palestine under the influence of the Romans for their entire lives. So so there was a little bit of the religious reasons they didn't believe it. There was a little bit of the current popular philosophy they didn't believe it. But Jesus' own followers did not believe in the resurrection. They did not expect it. They didn't hope for it. Let me give you some proof from the Bible. We'll put these verses on the screen just to show you what I mean. So Jesus had a lot of followers. Uh, There were two of them in particular, we don't know their name, who after the crucifixion were walking from Jerusalem back to a place called Emmaus. And it, it was, a, it was a, a long walk, but not unreasonable. And so as they're walking along, um, there's a third person who comes up and starts talking to them. They don't ever look up. They don't bother to see who it is. Uh, but but it, we know as the reader of the story that it's Jesus. And so Jesus is walking beside them and, and talking to them. And, and I imagine Jesus is kind of amused by their conversation. But at one point, as Jesus talks to them, here's what they say to him in Luke 24, 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Now, just to remind you of ninth grade grammar, had hoped is past tense. In other words, we had hoped he was the redeemer But we now know he is not. Because the Redeemer would not have been crucified and killed. They had no thought that he would be resurrected. But it wasn't just these two disciples. It was also the women. 
the women in all four gospel accounts, there are some ladies who make their way back to Jerusalem in order to prepare the body because they had to bury Jesus really quickly because it was Passover. And they couldn't, uh, they couldn't touch the body. They would contaminate themselves. They'd be unclean for the Passover feast. So they all came back early on Sunday morning to prepare the body. Why did they go back to prepare the body? Because they expected the body to be in the grave like bodies are supposed to be in the grave. And they get there, and the tomb is empty. And here's what they said, John chapter 20, verse 2. Here's the ladies are saying, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It was not in their thought process that Jesus would be resurrected, that Jesus would be alive. They just thought somebody had taken the body. Imagine, put yourself in this situation. It's Easter, and you decide you're going to take some flowers to Grandma's grave. And you go to grandma's grave and you get there and there is a hole dug and there's a vault lid laying on the side of the pile of dirt and the casket lid is up and grandma is not in the house. Now what do you think? You think somebody has robbed grandma's grave. You don't, the, your first thought is not that where's grandma? She must be alive. Your thought is somebody robbed the grave. It's exactly what these women thought. They did not believe that Jesus was alive and one of Jesus' closest followers, a man named Thomas. The other 10 disciples, Judas has already uh, committed suicide, so there are 11 disciples left. 10 of the disciples are in the upper room when the resurrected Jesus appears. Thomas is off doing something, running an errand. He misses it. And so when he gets back and the other disciples tell Thomas that they've seen Jesus who is alive, here's what Thomas says. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and the place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will, say it with me, never believe. See, nobody expected Jesus to come back to life. The Jews certainly didn't expect Jesus to come back to life. That was not what the Messiah was coming to do. The, the, the Greek philosophers in the Roman secular society, they did not expect Jesus to come back to life. Even Jesus' own followers did not expect Jesus to come back to life. Now, here's why I say that to you. Because we're here in a room with people from all different walks of life, different religious backgrounds, different worldviews. And in this room, I, I guarantee most of us fall into one of those three categories. We, we, we reject the idea of the resurrection based on religious convictions and traditions. That, that, that's just, it didn't happen. Maybe you were raised in a, in a different worldview or a different religion. You hold to a different set of beliefs, but the resurrection didn't happen. Or you just are, are maybe somebody who looks at science and current culture and current philosophy, and you would say, it's impossible, it's a great story, it's encouraging, it's uplifting, but it, it couldn't have really happened. Or maybe you would even be one who would say, you're a follower of Jesus, and you love his teaching. And you love to read the New Testament and you think it's a great way to live your life, but you're just not so sure if dead people come back to life. We, we all fit in those categories. And, and here's what I want to do this morning. Because my guess is, in our short time together, I'm not going to change anybody's mind. But I'd like for us to look at just a few things. A few things that I think we can all agree must be true. And if these things are true, then my challenge to you today is just to leave and consider is it just possible? Is it just possible that this is more than a story? That in fact, it happened. And if it did, it changes everything. So let me share with you three things. And these are three things 
that almost everybody agrees on. Okay, whether they're Christians, uh, whether they are, uh, whether they're believers, whether they're non-believers, whatever, they all, pretty much all historians, all theologians have have pretty well agreed on these three things. Let, Let me share the first one with you, and it's this, that Jesus really lived and died. He really did exist. He really did live and die. Almost everybody agrees with this now. Let me just share with you some proof that's not in the Bible about the existence of this man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. This first one comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus. And he wrote this in about 93 AD. And uh, there's a picture, a nice picture of, uh, of Josephus there. Let me read to you what Josephus said in his Jewish antiquities. This is not in the Bible. This is secular history. Here's what he said. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. And his conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets had reported wonders. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day, in 93 A.D., Josephus. There's another fella. This guy's name is Cornelius Tacitus. He lived from 56 A.D. to 117 A.D., and there's a picture of him. He looks uh, pretty smart, like a pretty smart dude. He was, uh, he was the, the Roman historian for the Roman Senate, and he wrote a year-by-year account of the activities of the Roman Senate And uh, there was a great fire in the city of Rome in 64 A.D. Now, this would have just been within a couple decades of of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there was an emperor at that time whose name was Nero. And he was a pretty bad dude. He had a building plan in mind for Rome. And uh, he couldn't get the Senate to buy into it. So he decided he'd just burn the city down. And then they'd they'd be forced to let him do this big building program. But the problem was when he burnt the city down, nobody was really happy that he'd burned the city down. So he turned and blamed this group of Christians. And it's actually the first time in secular history that we find the name of Jesus or Christians And here's what Tacitus wrote about this. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Now this is a Roman historian writing about the Christians and mentioning this person named Jesus Christ. Now this would have taken place in 64 AD, so we know by 64 AD all of Rome had to have known about the existence of this man Jesus. It, had, it was common knowledge and commonly accepted. Let me give you one more. A man named Pliny the Younger lived in 61 AD to 113 AD. Uh, he was a Roman governor of Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey. He wrote to the emperor Trajan, and he was writing him to get some help. Because he had a problem. Because everybody in his region, they were, they were becoming Christians. The Christians were beginning to have a, a great impact on their society and on their culture. And he wanted to know what to do about what he called a wretched cult. And he mentions Christians eight times in his letter. And he mentions Christ himself three times in the letter. And here's the most, here's the most famous reference to the Christians. Here's what he says about them. He said, these Christians who meet on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. 
Now, here's why I read these to you and why the last two I think are especially important. Because Pliny the Younger and Tacitus, they're not flattering accounts of Christians. These guys did not believe in Jesus. They did not like Christians. They did not like the early church. And yet, in their histories, they wrote about the church. They wrote about Christ as if it were historically true. They were disgusted by Christians. And yet, clearly, they believed that the man Jesus had existed. So we know Jesus really lived and died. But just because Jesus really existed does not mean that he's the Son of God. It doesn't mean that he's the Savior of the world. And it certainly doesn't mean that he rose from the dead. So let me give you the second thing. And if you're keeping notes, you can write this down on the back of your bulletin if you want to check any of this out later. Uh, I encourage you to do that. Here's the second thing about it. Uh, Jesus really lived and died. The second thing, Jesus' tomb was and is empty. It was and is empty. This is historically accepted by everybody. Let me show you some pictures that we have here of some modern excavations. This first one that we have is a picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is kind of an outline of it. Um, If you go to Jerusalem today and you say, hey, I want to see the the, the empty tomb. I want to see where Jesus was crucified. They actually built this, uh, this church over the site Uh, And inside the church, you can see the place uh, where Jesus was supposedly crucified and the empty tomb where they supposedly laid his body. And that's just kind of an artist's rendering of it. You can Google it and find better pictures of it. But there's a little bit of debate about if this was actually the spot because there was another place discovered in 1867 called the Garden Tomb. And we've got a picture of that as well. And this is a picture of the Garden Tomb. And many think that actually this may be the spot where Jesus was buried. The empty tomb is there. And then as recently as 1980, some archaeologists found what they call the Talpiot tomb. And it's five kilometers south of the old city. Here it is. And uh, there, are, there are some who think, no, this must be the place where Jesus uh, was buried. Now, why do I show these to you? Because First of all, nobody can say definitively which one it was, but most people agree it was probably one of these three. Here's what you need to know. They, ha- they all have something in common. They're all empty. Th- there's nothing in them. Uh, th- th- all these tombs are, in fact, empty. And not only are they all empty today, but they were clearly empty within days of Jesus' execution. Matthew, in his account of the story, writes in Matthew 28, verse 11. Here's what he says. He's, he's talking about the soldiers. If you remember, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, they put a stone over the entrance to the tomb, and they posted guards there because they had this idea that the disciples were going to come and steal the body of Jesus. And they wanted to keep this, this from getting any further. So they posted Roman guards with spears and weapons at the tomb. And when Jesus' body wasn't there anymore, obviously those Roman guards are concerned not only for their jobs, but more for their lives. Because if you lost a prisoner, uh, your life could be taken. That was part of Roman law. So here's what happened to these guards. Matthew 28, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. See, they didn't go back to their Roman bosses. They went to the Jewish because they thought, well, maybe the priests will be nicer to us than our bosses would be. And, and they, they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, the priests, give money to the soldiers, and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. 
And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, why is that important? Because Matthew is writing something that was still being told at the time he wrote it. There would have been people who would have read that and known, yep, I hear that story all the time. That's the story that's being circulated some 30, 40 years after the event. It's still being propagated. Matthew wrote this story so we know clearly the tomb had to have been empty within days in order for this story to have run about. The Jews and the Romans both agreed the tomb had to be empty, so there had to be a story to explain why the tomb had to be empty. But if there had, if there had ever been evidence that Jesus' body had existed, if there had ever been anybody who could have come and proven that they had the body of Christ... Christianity, the Christian church, would not exist today. I was, uh, last weekend, was with my daughter Abby in Washington, D.C., and on the final day we had the privilege to go to Arlington National Cemetery and to visit the tomb of the unknown, unknown soldier. And if you, if you haven't been there, it's, it's a powerful place, and there, there were actually four un, uh, unidentified soldiers buried there, a World War I a uh, soldier from World War I, a soldier from World War II, a Korean soldier, and a Vietnam soldier. Uh, but in the late 1990s, I think it was 1998, because of DNA testing, they were able to identify uh, correctly the, the remains of the Vietnam veteran. And so they, the family requested that he be exhumed and that he was buried in their family plot. And so actually that tomb is now empty. Why do I say that? Because if you follow any archaeological news, you'll, you'll know that over recent years with all the development of DNA, they have been able to identify some remarkable remains that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years further uh, than the Christian story. Pharaohs, and, and even in the Bible times themselves, there have been those who think, well, maybe we found the, the apostle James, or the disciple James, the brother of Jesus. That's one of the things that, that some think that maybe they found his remains. See, at any point in 2,000 years, had the body of Jesus been discovered, it's over. Game over. But they can't find the body because it's not there. And, and, and just, just, to, just to get at another myth or another story, the idea of a mass conspiracy is almost laughable. The, 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 the powerful Jewish religious establishment, the righty, mighty Roman government, if you think about the story of the Gospels, the disciples just, just hours before the resurrection were hiding, afraid for their lives because Jesus was being crucified. They did not expect him to be resurrected. And yet, we're supposed to believe that somehow this group who's just a little bit, maybe, maybe just about on the same par with the Keystone Cops, somehow got themselves together, found enough courage, overcame a powerful Roman sentry, stole the body, and successfully hid it somewhere so that it would never be discovered without ever leaving the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's almost beyond belief. And here's another thing to think about when it comes to this. That the tomb had to have been empty just as it's empty today, and it's this. If the body had existed, then the message of Christianity would not have spread in the city of Jerusalem. The disciples would have left Jerusalem and gone to Antioch. They could have gone to Athens. They could have gone to Rome. They could have gone to places where there would have been no eyewitnesses and where there would have been no access to anybody to go back and see where the empty tomb was. But where did they tell the story? They told it in Jerusalem, in the streets, over and over again, he is not here, he is alive. They stayed in the city where it happened to tell it. Anybody could have gone to find it. Anybody 
And if you go on and you read the book of Acts, it's really interesting. As the early Christians encounter the, encounter the Jewish leaders, not one time do you find the Jewish leaders arguing with them about the resurrection. Never. They just simply want the disciples to shut up about Jesus. Stop talking about him. But they never refute the fact that his tomb is empty. Now, we know that Jesus lived and died. We know that Jesus' tomb was and is empty. But, but all that could be true. If the tomb had just been empty with no sightings of Jesus, it really wouldn't prove anything. I mean, grave robbery could have happened. The body could have been incinerated or disposed of in some other way. But here's the third thing I want you to know this morning. And that is this. Jesus' disciples believed they had encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you have to believe that. But they really believed it. They really believed that they had seen him. It wasn't just a hallucination and it wasn't just a ghost because all of their accounts about the resurrected Jesus lined up. They saw him. When Jesus appeared, the Gospel of John is especially, uh, especially good at giving us, uh, giving us proof of his earthly existence. That Jesus ate breakfast with them on the beach. That Thomas touched the hands and touched the side. That that. Mary embraced him, that that Jesus was there more than just an appearance, but he was physically there. And here's what's even more powerful. That all of these guys, who just hours before had been hiding, who, who denied that they knew Jesus, who were willing to say, yes, we thought he was the Messiah, but we know now that we were wrong, all of them died, not because of their faith in Jesus, And not because of his teachings. And not because they believed he was a great prophet. That's not why they died. All of them died because they witnessed something. And they were unwilling to recant their account of history. All of them. Even some who didn't believe in him before the crucifixion. His brothers, James and Jude. They only came to believe in Jesus after they saw the resurrected Jesus. The Apostle Paul, we've already mentioned, only came to believe in Jesus after he had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. And here's here's the thing. All three of them also died rather than say it wasn't true. They believed it happened. They believe that it really took place. You know, we've got another piece of evidence one far more tangible than the ones I've mentioned today, and, and that's, that's your presence here today. 2,000 years later, all across our world in all kinds of different languages and all kinds of different customs and all kinds of different traditions, people gather in the church and they say over and over again, he is alive, he is alive, he is alive, and the story has transcended time and culture and geography And the church, now I'm not talking about the organization or the institution. I mean, that's got a mixed history, but I'm talking about the people. I'm talking about the people around you. People from all different levels of socioeconomics. People who who are highly intelligent and highly educated to people who have no education whatsoever. Uh, People have come to this conclusion that it must be true. Billions of people who believe that he's alive. And so here you are today. And I, I, my, my main goal for this is, is, is really just something that C.S. Lewis said uh, many, many years ago that I think is true, that Jesus made these claims about himself. And here's what you can't decide. 
You may decide that you believe that the resurrection happened. You may decide that you don't think it did happen. But here's what you can't decide. You can't just say, but Jesus was a really good man. And Jesus was a great teacher and he was a great philosopher. See, Jesus himself doesn't leave you that option because of the things he said. So C.S. Lewis said that Jesus either has to be a lunatic, he was completely out of his mind, he has to be a liar who was fabricating a story, or he has to be Lord. And just like the early disciples were surprised, 2,000 years later, maybe we're here and we're just as surprised by the claims of the resurrection. And we have to decide, what do we believe? I've got one more picture of an old dead guy for you. This guy is uh, Blaise Pascal. Um, And if you know anything about history, you you might remember the name Blaise Pascal. He was a French philosopher, mathematician, and a physicist. And uh, he, um, he was also a believer, which was not really in vogue in the scientific and philosophic communities of his day. And he became a great apologist for the Christian faith. And and I'd like to take an argument that he used about the existence of God, and I'd like to talk to you and use it for the reality of the resurrection. You see, if we come here today and and we we have, there's only two sides we can stand on: either it happened or it didn't. There's no nothing in between there. And and so there's this thing that that became known as Pascal's wager. Now, I'm not a gambling man myself, but I know if you're going to gamble, um, not that anybody in here would, but if you place some bets on the Final Four and the, you know, the NCAA championship, maybe in your office pool, uh, you probably did a little bit of research to find out where you should place your money so that you didn't lose it. That's exactly what Blaise Pascal suggested. He said, listen, it, if, in fact, if, in fact, the resurrection didn't happen, and you place all your chips on the fact that, no, the resurrection might be a nice story. It, it might have some great symbolic meaning, but it didn't really happen. You place all your chips on that bet, and you win. I, who believe in the power of the resurrection, believe that it really happened. I lose nothing. I lose nothing. But, but if, in fact, the resurrection did happen, and you place all your chips on the fact that you don't think it happened... I gain eternity and you lose it all. Now, why do, I, why do I say that? Because it doesn't matter whether you choose to believe in the resurrection or you decide to reject the resurrection. Do you realize that both of them are a statement of faith on your part? They both require faith. You can't just say, I'm stepping back and I'm not, I'm not a person of faith. You are a person of faith regardless of which you believe. Because you proved to me it didn't happen. The resurrection, the power of the resurrection to change lives, the power of the resurrection to change your life. Listen, if it didn't happen, then you've lost nothing today. Come together, maybe had some thoughtful conversations, seen some good pictures of some old dead guys, go have a nice lunch, go on about your life, everything's fine. But if it did happen, if it did, then everything's different. Everything changes. There's hope for something more than this life. There's hope for victory over sin. There's hope for victory over death. We believe Jesus is alive. And all I'm asking you to do is with a claim this radical, don't you think, don't you think it's worth just a little bit of your time, maybe a week or a month for you to study it for yourself? 
I mean, don't you think, just in case it's true, it would be worth you just opening your Bible or reading what some other people have said? We've got a book inside this gift, that we, gift bag we'd like to give you. Uh, it's Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Easter. We'd love for you to pick that book up from the information center today as you leave and, and read that book. And if we, could, if we can help you along this faith journey, have a conversation, we would love to do that. People around you who, who have come to believe this and study it themselves, they'd love to have this conversation with you. But I'm going to ask you as we close today just to bow your heads. We're going to have a time of commitment and invitation. And I'm going to ask the musicians, if they would, to come back up onto the stage. And as they're doing that, let me just invite you to consider the claims of the resurrection. Maybe it's not something you often think about. Maybe you only think about it once a year when you come to church on Easter Sunday or Christmas Eve when you gather together. But just right now, I'd just like you to think, what do I believe about the resurrection? Am I willing to make the wager that Jesus is alive? And here's the invitation. If you would receive Jesus, the living Son of God, Savior of the world, he promises that you will have security to know that all your sins have been forgiven and your home in heaven is eternally secure with him. And all you have to do is just in the stillness of your own heart and your own words, cry out to him with a prayer that sounds like this. You can even listen and pray along with me silently in your heart as we pray together. Father, I know that I'm broken. I know I live in a broken, sinful world. And I know that There needed to be a payment for my sin, and I believe that Jesus died the death that paid the penalty for my sins and that he's alive today. And Father, I place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I seek to live my life in such a way that I will follow after him. Lord, today as we gather in this place, there may be those who have struggled with the claims of the resurrection And like many throughout history, has simply decided to take a leap of faith. To follow that great cloud of witnesses who've gone before to say, we believe Jesus is alive. And it's made all the difference. Lord, if that's anybody's story here today, I pray that they would respond to you in the stillness of their heart. That, Lord, they might even go beyond that and reach out through a communication card and say, please pray for me. Talk to We'd like to talk to you. Or maybe, Lord, they'd even walk the aisles this morning and publicly profess their faith in Jesus. Father, we ask you to move in this time to reveal yourself to us. For we pray it in the powerful name of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.